Welcome to the Anchor Church Podcast. Each week, we'll bring you the teaching from our central campus. We hope it's an encouragement to you. Thanks for listening. Good morning, Anchor. How are we doing? Are we doing good this morning? The 10.30 usually has had slightly more coffee than the 9. Hey, we are in this teaching series called Kingdom Catechism. It's a joy to be with you. Catechism just means training or teaching. It's this word that is, uh, the church has used throughout its history to, uh, as its own language to describe the process of formation in the way of Jesus. And throughout this teaching series, we are looking at specifically identity in the way of Jesus. And like this question of identity, it is ever relevant because we're always wanting to answer it throughout our lives and throughout history. The question of identity is of always and forever is significant. And connected to the question of identity is the question of like how we view the world, like how you, how you look at the world, how you understand the world. Is the world good? Is the world bad? Is the world whatever? How do you find your way towards hope? What are the solutions that we should be abiding by and integrating into our life? This is something that philosophers call a worldview. And every one of us has a worldview. Every one of us looks at the world with certain ways of seeing what is right, what is true, what is beautiful, as we survey everything from news headlines to relationships to our neighborhood to our own families. And I have this conviction that like every worldview has to account for at least three things. And like the first is this, is like what is the source of all beauty and goodness that we see and experience? Like a, a worldview that doesn't answer that question is like missing something significant. Like, because we see it. You see beauty and wonder all around you. Everything from like a breaching humpback whale on a sunrise to like the tenderness of, and, of, and the kindness and the generosity of a stranger leaning in when they don't have to to help someone. This is the beauty and goodness that we see around the world. In fact, if you think about this, if you, if you believed that there wasn't beauty and goodness in the world, you would have an incredibly pessimistic worldview. And you'd be blind to a considerable amount of what we see as we just live in this world. But there's this other component too as well. Like it's like a worldview has to answer not just the source of beauty and goodness that we see, but has to answer this other question of what do we make of pain and tragedy and just like flat out evil? You see, just as a worldview that doesn't account for beauty and goodness it leads towards pessimism, a, beauty, or a worldview that doesn't explain evil and pain and tragedy leads towards naivete. Think about trying to live in this world without an understanding that this world is affected and marred by brokenness. You'd be constantly bumping into something that you would not be expecting, and it'd be a rude awakening after rude awakening. And third, I would say, is a worldview has to account for is what is the source of all healing and forgiveness? that we witness and experience. I mean, there's plenty of examples to the contrary, but you know, if you live for a certain amount of years, you, you encounter a relationship, a marriage that actually is healed. You encounter a person moving towards greater levels of mental health. You encounter uh, somebody moving towards recovery or sobriety. Like, these stories of redemption are actually fixed into like every great show and book that we consume because we know they're out there and we hunger for them. And just as you know, a, wor a worldview without beauty and goodness is pessimistic and a worldview without pain and tragedy is naive, a worldview without redemption is cynical. 
And you're looking at the world thinking there's no point, so there's no hope. A worldview that answers all three of those things is one worth thinking more about. And it, this teaching series, Kingdom Catechism, maybe you've noticed, but we've tried to answer some of these questions. The first week we talked about that we all are, bear the image of God and that we live in this world that's created by God. And the first opening chapters of scripture talk about God looking over everything that he's made and saying, good. You get this picture of like a, if you've ever made something, whether it's woodworking or a painting, a poem, or just a meal, and you like are proud of it. You look back and you're like, good, right? You get the sense that like, that's what God's doing as he's looking over creation. And so just even the idea of like, like what we consider beautiful is connected to us bearing the image of God, scripture says. Like our understanding of beauty is connected to God's understanding of beauty. And so that we can look out and see whether it's a sunrise or the kindness of a stranger, whatever. And we can say good because we have this kind of imprint that we've been endowed with by the maker himself that is reflected in our image bearingness. New word for you. In the second week, we talked about how a scriptural, the scriptural worldview, the scriptural understanding accounts for all the pain and evil and tragedy we see in the world and calls it in that one three-letter word that is more cultural swear word than anything else, sin. Sin. It happens in the small micro settings, with just in your own heart happens in systemic settings, affecting great swaths of people without anyone being able to point to it and address, how did that thing go wrong in the first place? Sin. And today, we're answering the third question, or the third uh, element. Where does healing and forgiveness come from? In Scripture, all throughout it, from Old to the New Testament, from the Hebrew Scriptures to the Greek New Testament, points to Jesus consistently, constantly. So today we are going to go super rogue here at Anchor Church. We're going to go off the rails. We're going to be talking about Jesus at church. I know. Tell your friends. To do it, we're going to be looking at the Gospel of John, and John is the fourth gospel. And so it's going to be up on the screen if you don't have a Bible handy. But the Gospel of John, what you need to know about the Gospel of John, it's, it's written by, or the testimony of, the disciple John. And John was said to have like one of the most intimate friendships with Jesus. In fact, so it's like in the Last Supper, when right before the cross, the shadow of the cross is hanging over this Last Supper meal. And where's John? He's like sitting right next to Jesus and his, says his head is actually on the chest of Jesus, hearing the heartbeat of the master, hearing the heartbeat of the rabbi. This is this picture of how close John was to Jesus, and his story is the record of his encounter and his experience and his understanding of Jesus. And right at the beginning, he gives us this in John chapter 1, verse 1, we're going to be going through today all 14 verses, the first 14 verses, and we'll have it all on the screen. We'll be going through it kind of piece by piece, but the first few verses read like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. 
And in him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. That light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. When you think about like the Gospels, and I mentioned that those are the first four books of the New Testament that record the birth and the, the teachings, the miracles and, and, and the interactions that Jesus had that lead ultimately to his death and his resurrection, the, the, they all like start in different places. It's kind of interesting when you think about it. Like Matthew and Luke, they start, understandably, with the birth of Jesus. They start in the manger. They start with the beginning of, of Jesus being born. And Mark's like, you know what? I'm cutting to the action. You know what? No commercials. I got the smallest gospel. I'm going right for the action. So Jesus in Mark's gospel doesn't begin with the birth, but it begins with the miracles and the teaching and the ministry of Jesus. Mark wants to let you in on the action at the beginning. He knows you have a short attention span. And John, though, interestingly, begins not with the manger or with the ministry, he begins before time. Did you catch that? It says, in the beginning was the word. That word, word, sounds redundant. That word, word, is uh, John's word for Jesus here in the opening bit of the Gospel of John. So interesting word to use for Jesus. Um, but check this out. John knows that the Old Testament and its prophecies and its promises and its covenants, they all point to one person. They all are oriented ultimately towards the person of Jesus. So scriptures written hundreds of years before the manger, they actually find their fulfillment in Jesus. And so when John says the word, he's saying the fulfillment, the climax of all of, of, of the expectation in the Old Testament, it it's really finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. So he says it's the word. And then secondly, it's interesting, in, in the first century, the, well, the Greek word for word, if you continue to follow all of that, is logos. And it's a word that was used to describe kind of God or spiritual force in the first century by various philosophies. And so John using that word for word, using the word logos for word, he's not only orienting it towards like the fulfillment of all of Old Testament hope and prophecy, but he's also letting you in. Maybe you're not familiar with the Old Testament or the Jewish scriptures. Maybe you're just familiar with the conversations at the marketplace about the logos. And he's saying, yes, that too. The, the, the God that you think you know is actually found ultimately in Jesus. You can think about this, like maybe this is helpful. A lot of us have inaudible thoughts, and sometimes those inaudible thoughts became aud become audible words, and sometimes they shouldn't, uh, you know. But the inaudible thought in the heart of God and the mind of God becomes the audible word in the presence of Jesus. So when we look at Jesus, we understand who God is. We know what God is like. <clears throat> it's interesting... Um, like, as I mentioned that 
John is wanting us to understand that, that Jesus is, is actually, he existed before everything was. In fact, it says that through him all things were made. And it's touching on this doctrine that Jesus followers have, have believed in from uh, the very beginning of Trinity, that God exists in community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then uh, I want you, if you're like, okay, just taking a bookmark here, you know, some of you guys are like the really practical people and you want three points in a poem. I know theology maybe not doing it for you, okay? I get it, I get it. So I just want you to say, this is going to become practical. I need you to just, like, go with me. Continue to go with me, okay? We good? Okay, there's moderate rumblings. Okay, I'll just take it. Genesis chapter 3. Uh, this is where we get sin. It talks about sin. And John talked about this last week. Um, but right at the, towards the end of Genesis chapter 3, it's interesting. There's this passage um, that reads like this. Um, I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is God speaking to the snake, the, the, the figurehead, the stand-in for all evil, the representation of, of, uh, of spiritual enmity, the devil. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. But good news, uh, this is, what does this mean? You, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is the theologians refer to as the proto-euangelion, which, of course, you just wrote that down. It's in crucial to Monday morning. That, what, is, that, what does that mean? It's the good news before the good news. Right there in Genesis 3, we actually hear about the promise of Jesus. That God speaking to the serpent says that there will be a day where death will be defeated and evil will be vanquished and you might try to attack the one who will save and you may strike his heel, but he's going to crush your head. It gets like all of a sudden, like heavy metal right there, Genesis 3, you know? <laughs> Crushed serpents? I mean, come on. Like Ozzy Osbourne, eat your, you know? Come on. Uh, okay, why is this important? Because John talks about Jesus before the creation of the world. And Genesis talks about Jesus right there at the beginning of evil entering into the world. What is Scripture communicating? Scripture is communicating that Jesus was not just a smart rabbi that knew how to do some cool tricks, but that Jesus was like the pre-existent there from the beginning. And why is that important? Here's the practical people. This is for you. It's important because on Monday morning or Thursday afternoon, when you feel like your hope levels are incredibly depleted and diminished, or you feel like you have put yourself in a situation that you cannot get out of, and you're wondering how tomorrow will even happen, there is one that was there before the beginning. He's not surprised by your sin. He's not surprised by your worst decision. He's not going to leave you because of it. In fact, way before you even existed, there was a promise given that he would be the one that would, that would crush evil and wipe away all tears and that redemption is always and every, every and always possible when you understand that it is not according to your own capacity and competency, but it's according to his riches and his grace.
And I can't think of anything more practical than that. Because we all bump into the fruit of our worst decisions. And we all bump into the sense that maybe there isn't hope. So to be reminded that Jesus, the Savior, was there before the beginning and is there with the promise in the midst of evil's emergence into the world. He is fierce and he is loving. He will fight for you at great personal cost. Think, think about this. If I was like an entrepreneur um, that created something, you know, maybe a, a new app or a new piece of tech, and then I came to find out that there was a bug that was in it, you know, I, if it's me, just thank God that I'm not God, you know. I would probably just toss it and try to do something else. But God, when the bug emerged called sin, he didn't toss the whole thing and create another universe. In fact, John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world, but the Greek is cosmos. God so loved the cosmos. It's good news. We keep going in verse 9. We pick it up in verse 9. It says, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. It had become so used to darkness. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children not of natural descent, nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but the born of God. Right at the beginning there, in, in verse 5 and in verse 9, it talks about darkness. In verse 9, it talks about the true light was coming into the world. And if the true light is coming into the world, that means that, that before the true light came into the world, there was a measure of darkness. I am personally not a big fan of darkness. The days are getting darker. And I don't mean that in some type of weird, vague, spiritual sense. I just mean like, it's fall and it's happening, guys, again. I love when I come, I come here early Sunday mornings and I love when it's bright outside and it's light outside and it's not. I get here and it's still dark and it stays dark for another half an hour. I don't like the darkness. I get up early on Sunday mornings. I just mentioned that and I, I oftentimes I, I wake up and I, even before the coffee's done and I, I, I'm fumbling for the door because I don't want to turn the lights on while my wife is sleeping. I don't know if I've ever tried that, but I don't think I ever want to try that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I open the door and I don't like know why, but my cat thinks it's the best move to walk right in front of me in the midst of the darkness right there in the hallway. And I, I constantly am tripping over this cat. Uh, you know, I, I guess on reflection, it's kind of a cat thing to do to try to murder its owner, you know. <laughs> it's a, I did mention that in the first gathering. It's not a new joke. I apologize. Um, but in the lobby afterwards, somebody came up to me and said, it's worse than that. And I'm like, you look crazy. <laughs> it's worse than that. They begin by clawing your furniture, the stuff you can't replace. They whittle you down to the bone and then they murder you at night. That's what cats do. I don't like the darkness. The darkness, when we first got here, I, I, and around at the back of this hallway, there's a, or back of this stage, there's a hallway. Uh, and I didn't know where any of the light switches were, but I knew there were tons of things back there. 
And it was like this, some type of sick joke, you know, always when somebody said, hey, can you go back there and pick up, get something? And I'm like, I don't know where the light switch is, but I'm literally, my knees are bruised and I'm going to fall over. John's saying that that is a little bit like life without Jesus' light. If you've been in that situation, you know you can get through. You know you can kind of find your way. You might have a bruised nose. A cat might try to kill you, you know. Um, But there isn't the clarity that could be. There isn't the ability to discern what right is and what truth is and what wrong is that there could be. So you're kind of pawing and fumbling and trying to find the light switch. I love this picture of darkness and light that the scripture gives us. It's not just kind of like the clarity that light brings that darkness doesn't offer, but like a psychologist, uh, one of the preeminent psychologists in the 20th century said that shame will do three things to you. Depending on your personality, you might feel this, one of these, more than the other. The first is attack. So if you're feeling shame, lots of times, if you're, depending on your personality, you might attack someone else. Maybe they, it feels like they're causing you to experience shame, and so you tense up and you fight because you don't want to experience shame, and so you're trying to push that feeling back even at the expense of somebody else. Another strategy some other personality types do is appease. I'm going to do whatever I can to appease you because I don't want to experience shame. That, of course, leads to burnout and a host of other problems. But the third thing I think that all of us do, irrespective of our personality type, that this psychologist said is hide. Stay in the dark. Hide away from the light. Because to come out into the light if you're feeling ashamed is incredibly scary. Especially if you've written stories about what might happen. So sometimes... This idea, this feeling of shame keeps us in the darkness. It's the good news because the light that Jesus brings is not just a clarifying, illuminating light, but it's a warm light. It's a warm light. I was watching my son's soccer game yesterday like every parent was with their daughter or son. And there was this moment where the clouds opened up My son did great, by the way. I know you're interested. Um, (laughs) We're selling tickets for next Saturday. Um, There's this moment where the clouds opened up and the sun, you know that feeling when the sun hits you and you're like, oh, there's the sun. It's funny because five weeks ago we were like saying, get away, sun, you know. But like there's this warmth when you're cold. And like the light that Jesus brings that John is talking about It disrupts the darkness, not only with illumination, but with warmth. So I guess I would say to anyone and to everyone that has experienced that shame that keeps you in the darkness or is currently experiencing that shame that keeps you in the darkness, that keeps you from sharing the truth that needs to be told, and so it keeps you in this prison of your own sense of shame, and there's this compartment of your life that you never open up because how, what might happen if it opens up, if other, somebody, the light that Jesus brings illuminates and brings warmth.
It doesn't point the finger. It opens up the arms. That's the light that Jesus brings. We're faced with this situation, and John is is sharing this, that when we are in this condition of darkness because of the brokenness out there and in here, but then the light enters into the world, and we have this opportunity to, to let the disruption of the darkness by light take us towards deliverance or if to deny the light and just move towards defeat. These are the options. And for those of us that say yes or will say yes or have said yes or are in the process of saying yes, there's this beautiful truth that John says uh, here in verses 12 and 13. I'll read it again. It says, Yet to all who did receive him, for all of everybody that let the darkness be disrupted by the light, the warm, illuminating light of God, for every one of us that did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right. I love that. It's like a right that we have to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, but, or a husband's will, but born of God. i got to confess, I, for a long time I hated the term born again. I know it's weird for a pastor to say that. But every time I heard born again, I, I thought of some fundamentalist type wagging their finger and you know, saying born again. And I just, I wanted to kind of like not use that language. Um, but I've repented of my ways. <laughs> I started thinking about it. I started thinking not just of like the stereotypical person that I imagined saying that word, but I started thinking about what the words mean. I think about a child. A child, I mean, we know they're not perfect. Amen? <laughs> Kids in here from the room, it's, it's not you, it's the other ones. Um, but a child knows they need to learn. So at some point, I don't know what age, you stop thinking you need to learn. We'll call that age the age of toxic adulting. Because a child knows they need to learn and they ask like an, an annoying amount of questions. What about this? Hey, how about this? How about this? It's like they think you are like know everything. And you don't tell them that Google exists, that yes, I know this, yeah, yeah, yeah. But a child knows they need to learn, which means that their world is marked by wonder. Frederick Buechner said that a child knows time not by its quantity, but by its quality. By like every time snow comes, it's like, snow! And we look out the window and we're like, traffic's going to (laughs) suck. A child looks out at the world with questions and wonder. A child has the sense of a fresh start. The toxic adulting muscle memory has not been developed. And that we're lovingly dependent on someone else. We're not autonomous individuals, but we're lovingly dependent. And John's saying that if you say yes to the light, the light that is Jesus, that illuminates our need for sin, but brings us in with warmth, if you say yes to the light, you're like born again. Paul later would say that if anyone's in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And I love that because think about Genesis. It's, it's a creation that's good, but it's broken. And Paul's saying there's an opportunity for a new creation. Like every one of us here right now is welcomed, is invited 
into the warmth and illumination that Jesus offers us, inviting us out of groping around existence, trying to find our way, but towards light. John goes on, he says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Um, Eugene Peterson, an author and pastor, uh, paraphrased the entire Bible. And um, to that first line there, the word became flesh, he, he, he paraphrased that section by saying, uh, the word or Jesus moved into our neighborhood. I love that. What, what he's trying to communicate, both Peterson and John, is that, that God came near. That God is not a distant God. That God is not a God that wants to stay far away, a clockmaker that makes his thing and then walks away to make another thing, but that God is warmth and relational energy and love and he's personal and he's near. The light came near. <clears throat> At the end of the Gospel of John, there's a story about Mary and Jesus. Mary, we know, is one that was invited in close physical proximity to Jesus to learn as a, as a pupil by the rabbi Jesus, which was uncommon in the first century for a woman to be invited to be a pupil, a disciple of Jesus. And, and so, understandably, not only had she seen him do great miracles, but she had invited into a great opportunity. And then so when Jesus died, everything kind of unraveled for her. She did not stay far from the tomb. While the other men were going afraid and hiding out, she was at the tomb. And when she came one morning early, she saw, as John 20 says, that the tomb was empty and it was open. And it grieved her because she wanted nothing more than just to be close to Jesus, even if it was just his body. And, uh, and she saw someone and thinking that was the gardener. She said, who took his body? Where is it? What are you done? Well, like, like, what's going on here? I need answers. And the gardener said one word to her, Mary. She had heard that name, her name, spoken with that vocal intonation for three years by Jesus. And that was then that she realized the gardener was not the gardener, it was the risen Jesus. I love the idea of her thinking it was the gardener because if you remember back to Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 2, Adam and Eve was put in the garden to care for it, to be gardeners over God's creation. And now in John 20, Mary's thinking this is the gardener. It's almost as if scripture's communicating here is one that is to care for the garden, but one that has not failed like the first Adam. Here's the new Adam. Here's the new human. Here's the, new, here's the one that will not fail, but has done all things for us because we have. Have you heard your name from his voice? Have you felt how near he wants to be to you? The band can come up right now. 
Have you heard in the midst of your tears, in the midst of your doubt, in the midst of your darkness, in the midst of your frustration, in the midst of your anger, in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your confusion, have you heard Mary? Have you heard your name? Um, some of you remember um, photographs being actual things you can touch. You guys remember that? They were, I promise you. Um, well, I've got a Tupperware box in my, uh, in my closet. Uh, and sometimes I bring it out. And in that Tupperware box, there's notes and there's some baseball cards. And, um, and then there's some old school pictures. One of those school pictures, um, and I think I've shared this at some point with some of you, but it's my ninth grade school picture. I look at that picture when I'm kind of in one of those nostalgic moments, bringing that Tupperware box out, and I, I see um, a kid that's groping around in the darkness. A kid who's been vacuumed up by the collective of the chemically dependent. A kid who has wounds that he does not know of and is trying to solve the problem of those wounds through escaping chemically through stronger and, 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 and more dangerous drugs. This hollow-eyed kid looking at the photographer as if there's no hope to even consider. Flipping the photographer off with his eyes. And for a moment, when I look at that picture, my heart breaks. I want to tell that kid that in five years, you're going to be in a place where you know the warmth and light of true hope. You're going to know that there is no need to grope around existence for the light switch, but that the light can turn on and rise like a sunrise with the warmth that the sun brings. There is cause for hope. And though he doesn't know it yet, he will know it soon. Have you heard him say your name? Have you heard him say your name? Have you heard him say, come out of the darkness. Don't settle for the darkness. It's not healing you. It's not giving you hope. It's not inviting you to wholeness. Come out of the darkness, Mary. There's a quote by uh, one of the best preachers, I think, in the 20th century. His name is George Buttrick, and he says, the coronation of Christ in the heart happens among tears, laughter, and great joy. Why the tears? Because you recognize that you have been met by a love that is unequaled in the world, and it just causes this laughable amount of tears. Wow. The end of the Narnia stories, if you're familiar with those. Aslan meets the protagonists of Narnia and they're in heaven, so to speak. And Aslan keeps saying, farther and further in, farther and further in. It's like they think they've reached the terminal destination and it's just the beginning. And I just want to say for those of us that have started out on a journey of following Jesus, even right now, there's a farther and further in. There's more healing. There's more light. There's more warmth. There is more for you. There's more. And it's all grace. And it's all offered as gift. 
So we celebrate uh, communion every week. We do communion because we think that um, at the core of who God is is love and it's demonstrated in his sacrifice on our behalf. So when you come forward for communion, if you're those among those that have said yes to the light, uh, you're gonna hear these words, Christ's body given for you, Christ's blood shed for you. We say those words because we think that hearing them is important from someone else's mouth. It's hard for us sometimes to to believe them ourselves, but when we hear them from somebody else's mouth, when we touch them, we're reminded, yes, it's true for me. I want to invite us as we can stand, I want to pray over us as we step into this last song with communion. And I would say, uh, maybe as you're taking a breath and standing up on the wings, of this building, there's uh, space, there's this room, there's prayer. And we say, don't keep, don't, don't keep from prayer when you have a prayer need. In fact, somebody came up to me last week and they said, I went to prayer for the first time last week. Not only was the prayer answered, but I was so nervous about going forward for prayer that I waited till my wife had to go to the bathroom and I snuck away for prayer. <laughs> He said, please tell people, just go to get prayer. Spirit of the living God, come near. For those of us that doubt your existence, breathe on us. Speak our name with your voice. For those of us that feel defeated by the challenges of life, come near, come near, come near. May we all hear something close to farther and further in, farther and further in, farther and further in. We pray in the powerful, unrivaled name of Jesus.